When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. An unscripted and unedited show, I might say. Someone mentioned that they like that at a Patreon comment or something. Keep all of our ums and uhs and fillers word uh, in this one. That's what we do. We never know what's going to come out. Uh, we have agenda items that are just links at this point. This document is wild. If you look, at it's kind of like the Horn of Plenty. It's what, 540-something um, pages long now? Yeah, it is. We're, we're somewhere in the 520-ish episodes at this point. We stopped numbering a while ago. We had drop-ins and things like that. Um, but it was reminded to me because, well, of a story we'll get to in a minute. Um, well, I'm sure if you're listening to the show, you, you saw the news about Salman Rushdie, and I've thought a lot about it this week. I'm not sure I have anything interesting to say mm-hmm. except condolences. But it's the kind of show where if we were more breaking news focused, you drop a special episode about Salman Rushdie, right? Like there's shows yes. that we listen to, like, let's do 20 minutes on this. This is an important thing. Um, but we don't. So I guess then we get a little bit of time to process. But it's an interesting format to have because sometimes it's like it broke yesterday. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's been a week. Um, so there's diversity even within our own uh, uh, mulling cycle <laughs> yeah, on this stuff. I'll, I can't totally remember. I think we might have done a special drop-in about the Nobel one year, maybe. Yeah. And I know when HarperCollins announced To Kill a Watchman. It's not To, ki- to Kill a Watchman. Kill there's a, watchman. a nice portmanteau. Um, when they announced to go set. Go set a watchman. What an, it's Go set a watchman. Aw- yeah, such an awkward title that I remember. I was traveling and I remember listening to you and Amanda talk about it, but I don't mm. remember if that was like breaking news or just the top of the show that week while I was gone. But I I like it that there's variety here. Sometimes we have time to think about things. Maybe once or twice a year, something breaks on Thursday late afternoon, just after we've recorded, right. and it's like, ah, oh, right. darn it! You know, like we're yeah. we're gonna have to wait a week. But then usually we know more about that thing by the time mm-hmm. that we talk about it a week later we can be a little bit more informed so it, yeah. it is what it is we're but i do like the unedited nature of it I every now and then somebody asks about podcast prep and I'm like we read the links that we've gathered over the course of the week and i don't know 10 years in i'm i think i'm decent you're decent at knowing kind of the direction right. the other one might go in but what I, you're going to be interested in yeah, yeah but in terms of like what what kind of takes are going to come out mm. it's still sometimes very surprising which directions <laughs> our opinions are going to go on things yeah uh so anyway we'll get to the main stories in a minute let's see any follow-up um actually i have some follow-up that's going to relate to a, a link i just dropped in that you probably didn't see about barnes and noble making stocking changes so i can warm uh, you up for that yeah one. Did i you saw see that, that floating slide? around okay. this morning yeah yeah it's worth may- maybe mentioning mm-hmm. um beyond that if you are interested in becoming a patreon member our enticement that's available now is our adaptation nation our diet version adaptation nation um, our adaptation city-state, let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it was still an hour long. <laughs> civics buffs out there. Um, we did of Kazuo Shiguro's wonderful Never Let Me Go, one of our shared favorite books. I, I think mm-hmm. we knew this, but we didn't know it until we actually yes. did this yeah. particular episode. Um, after this, we're going to record what's going in the feed for next week, in which I'm going to try... It, this is kind of an extended half-baked idea, in which I'm going to propose a different way of doing book rankings, reviews, and ratings. Um, I'm maybe, so ready. And again, it's half-baked, but it's something we're doing, and I want to pitch it to Rebecca. And I, I'd like people's feedback, too. I mean, this is one where I'd be interested. Am I totally off my rocker here? Does this Is this in the area of interesting? Um, are we all set on Goodreads reviews and Amazon reviews and everything else? I guess my general feeling is that we have not figured this out on the whole. Uh, of of how to how to talk about in a digestible format whether or not or what to say about a book a reading experience you had of a book I, I just don't feel like it works I don't know I, I don't go to any of these places I'm looking for reasons to pick this book for that book the book all the time 
and I'm still doing the thing I kind of did in like 96 was like, was there a good review? And did someone I know kind of <laughs> say something about it? And I'm back to square one, even after all this time, Rebecca. So that's where I'm coming from today. Yeah, me too. I think so often my experience with those sort of like review aggregators or social media based reviews of books is that it's like, here's what happens in this book. I liked it or not. Right. And I'm so much less interested in what happens in a book than what the book is about on an mm-hmm. ideas level or a craft level. What will it feel like to read this book is really the thing that I want. And so I do get my recommendations in that still very 1996 way. Also someone who knows me, <laughs> recommended it to me someone whose taste I know and trust enjoyed it there was a review that elaborated on some of those elements of what it feels like to read it or a bookseller I think booksellers are great at this of like a bookseller who knew that you liked this one thing understands what those intangible parts of that book are and right. can recommend you something else that will give you a similar experience even if the content and the subject matter are very different from the original this might sound like a huge ad for TBR, my tbr.co if you want to go check it. It's not, but it's it's addressing the same. Yeah. It's, it's giving recommendations, but on a one-on-one basis, we actually buy the book. The one-to-many version that what I'm it's talking really about hard. is- It's very hard. And I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about it. We'll talk about it. Um, Patreon.com slash Book Riot Podcast if you want yeah. to check that and out there. And next week we will be recording- Oh, yeah. Fall Books Draft, the biggest season of new books of the year. It's going to be a good time. So just go ahead and get into the Patreon yeah. so that when that comes out at the end of August, you will get that fall books draft. And then the week after that, you'll get a look back at our summer draft, which those are so interesting now that we're doing those. Mm. Of like, Which of the books we put in our drafts did we read? How are those books performing? Right. Anything else that we wished we had put in, all that kind of look back stuff is really great. Yeah. I've got my initial 10. I've got, if I could, if it was just me picking and I knew I'd get all these 10, I have that, but I need to work on my handful of backups. A little different. We're doing categories this time around, Mm -hmm. which we're not just picking generically. We have to meet a couple of criteria. Um, I think this this will be fun. We'll see if we like it, but it does make it more of a challenge because you're not just looking for the number one overall or number two, three, four, five overall, you know, crowd pleasers. You got to mix and match. So we'll see how we like this, but it's, it's, it's proven to be an interesting wrinkle on the Mm -hmm. uh, title long list selection. Anyway. Okay. Let's do our first sponsor break. And we'll come back. I'm not going to go over the details of what happened to Salman Rushdie. Um, thankfully, he seems to be on the mend in, in as much as possible. At the very early stages, it wasn't clear if he was going to die, if he's going to be very disabled in, in an ongoing permanent... I, I still don't know, but it looks like he can talk. It looks like he's going to make a recovery of some sort which i'm glad for mm-hmm. um you know at one point there was like and maybe it still be they was going to lose an eye the nerves in his sho- shoulder were shoved. he may have um permanent effects of this certainly there'll be psychological ones um but i've got to say from where i see it right now from where i th- saw the image i saw 20 minutes after this happened <sighs> i guess it's a better outcome than i feared. Um, I know that's not much solace, but I'm trying to find some kind of thing to hold on to here because what a gruesome mm-hmm. moment. Um, one of the scariest book-related moments I, I can think of, even if, like many of you out there, I'm sure, knew that Rushdie had you know, a actual um, death sentence from the powers that be um, in, in the Islamic world, in Iran especially, and that's come and gone. Um, but I think, I don't know, I don't know how imminent it always felt to him now. You know, did he feel like the cloud had lifted? I don't really know. I certainly took it for granted that he was going to be okay and wasn't in danger, and that turned out to be wrong, and so I think that was part of it for me. The irony of him speaking about how the U.S. is a safe place for writers in exile cannot be lost on anyone. It's both more and less true than maybe even his, his lecture shows. I'll say this. I think I went back and I read some reviews. I got my Rushdie off the shelf. I slept on Rushdie. The guy's a giant. I, why doesn't he have a Nobel Prize? This is where I am today. Like, I've, we, all, we all took him for granted. Like, mm-hmm. Some of these books are amazing. Midnight's Children, if you haven't read it, put it on your list. is one of the great achievements of the 20th century. I think probably in America and, and even in 
the the broader UK, the people that like me that make awards decisions, this is not the world. They don't really understand the the brave nature of his critiques, his literary project, his life being on the line in a real way, mm-hmm. and the the real vanguard he was on artistically and politically and aesthetically. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that Nobel Prizes are supposed to do for us is say, this guy, this woman, this they is doing something remarkable and the world should know about it. Like, I've been pretty sanguine about the Dylan win, yeah. but if I think about it, it could have been Rushdie. I'm like, this is ridiculous. What are, mm-hmm. we, what are we doing here? I mean, there's a lot of people who could do this, but in this particular moment, the import, um, the daring, the putting your body on the line... I don't know what else you're supposed to do. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what else you're supposed to do, to, to be perfectly frank. I don't really know. But that's that's a side point. Please go read Midnight's Children. It's it's not the easiest book in the world. It's not Sabbath, or, um, excuse me, um, the Satanic Verse is Sabbath Theater is Philip Roth. I always get that confused. They have similar covers and spines on my shelf and sit next to each other. That's completely idiosyncratic. <laughs> but go check it out. And even, you know, if you want to dive in a little bit, his short story collection East West is very good. I would urge you not to start with Satanic Verses if you're interested. I mean, it's good, and it's the one that gets the pub, and it was the the straw that broke the camel's back um, in the in his political death sentence. I, there's no other way to put it. I keep find, trying to find ways to sugarcoat it, and there's no doing it, especially why why do it now? Um, but that's that's where I am today, and I, I feel bad that I've kind of taken Rushdie for granted. I think because he became a figure of some minor pop culture fame as a Lothario and dated famous mm-hmm. beautiful women and had a lot of you know played himself in famously in Bridget's Own's Diary as sort of <laughs> the figure of glamorous establishment um, may, maybe the twinkle lights of that blinded me from remembering that the guy is one of the titans of our lifetime it will be remarkable to think I was alive at the same time Salman Rushdie was doing even going back and reading the stories about the, the, the death sentence and, and his condemnation now seem unreal. They seem like something in a Rushdie novel, weirdly, at this point. So I'm not sure what else to say, but I, I think it's a good reminder that ideas are dangerous. They can be provocative. And the very nature of being on the vanguard, unfortunately, even in a place where theoretically you're safer than you are, still even safer than you are almost anywhere else in the world, Words matter. Um, this particular person who s- seems to have done this heard someone else's words and calls for violence. And even if the, you know, the the official statements about Rushdie's relationship to the state of Islam or these particular leaders had changed, the words remember, the words lingered, mm-hmm. and they matter. Um, and we shouldn't take this serious. We should. We have to take these seriously. And I think in this era of a lot of stuff being said about people. Um, Maybe we're maybe I'm numb to just people can call for violence and we just get used to it. I, I think I'm feeling a little that today, Rebecca. Any other thoughts or what, what were you struck by in, in this story and the ramifications? Yeah, I was I was really struck by the mention. I don't know if it's in this New York Times piece or in one of the other you know, dozens of things that I clicked on in the last week about this, but the note that the event space where this was held in upstate New York had really minimal security. Yeah. And like, this is how I want to live in a world where if you're going Mm -hmm. to a book event, you don't need major security. I think it speaks to what you were saying that Rushdie felt safer here than anywhere else. And, and safe. I would, you know, presumably if he felt the need for security or didn't want to attend an event that didn't have security, he could have either not gone or requested that there be more security. And so to be so many decades out, the the fatwa was issued in 1989, so yeah. many dec- decades out of that and in a space where it feels like this is over um, or bu- in the rearview mirror, I guess, not something that he needs to live under daily, though certainly I can't imagine that his daily life isn't impacted in some way um, right. by what that experience was like. And then to have it happen, that it's a young person who, like, <clears throat> the um, the alleged attacker is 24 years old, yeah. you know, but wasn't even alive <laughs> when this mm. started, um, makes the durability uh, of these ideas and how dangerous they are feel really present. And this rang 
I think this really hit me deeply, not just because of Rushdie and all of the things that you're saying about really the amount of bravery that it took to continue to do the kind of work that he did. But we are in a moment politically where Mm. it may be safer here than anywhere else in the world to speak out about ideas. And we do have freedom of speech, but that safer is not safe. And we are seeing calls, especially in the far right, for attacks on all kinds of things. Go attack the FBI because they're, you know, investigating Donald Trump. Go attack these librarians because they're hosting Drag Queen Story Hour. And the violence is not just verbal. It's not just about go vote and get people out of office. There are calls for physical violence and there are people who are heeding those calls. And this is a reminder that this kind of thing um, is one of the big risks of tolerating the creep towards yeah. any of this stuff. Um, and and that it's not, it might not be fully denounced. You know, it's not hard to imagine a version of this where a queer writer goes to give an event and is attacked mm-hmm. by someone who doesn't like that a queer writer is giving an event in their town. And are the political groups arguing for going against queer writing groups going to speak out against this kind of violence? You know, it's it's a theoretical question, but I, I don't have a hard time imagining no. how that might play out and that it would play out in a way I would find to be deeply unacceptable <laughs> and disturbing. And especially Rushdie and what he stands for and the work with, you know, PEN America and f- protecting the First Amendment for writers. I think this is a real wake up call about really how serious it is when we're talking about not just that it's important that like kids in libraries have access to books that reflect them and not just that our public resources like libraries and public schools present a diversity of ideas, but that we are talking about the marketplace of ideas just in humanity. And if we don't defend that vigorously, it will be attacked vigorously. Um, Really there's it just really brings that home to watch a human have his body literally on the line in this way, which I think I have become a little bit numb to as well, because we mm. see so many reports of violence of all kinds, but watching it, seeing the video that came out, as you were saying, um, really astonishing and in a place where we should be able to be safe. Safety should be an assumption in a space like that. And the fact that it, it isn't, and it can't be, um, is really, really troubling. And, you know, there's a big difference in the freedom from and the freedom to. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, there's no world in which we can live that I understand that you can be free from the decision by one individual to hurt you. Right. If they don't care about the consequence. Right. Um, But that the state at least allows the freedom to enter into the marketplace of ideas. Mm Mm-hmm is something to be cherished and, and not taken for granted. And I think this is one of those moments where what Rushdie was talking about is for a long time, the U S is a place where you could come and write your story and you weren't going to go to prison as long as you stayed within, you know, the gross, you know, parameters of what's protected by the first amendment, the freedom to critique the state or the church or institutions of power. And it's it's so, and this is to seg, I don't want to segue into it, I'm not going to leave it, but it's connected to all, this groundswell of movements to get books out of libraries, and, and let's be honest, that mm-hmm. people on the right don't want there. Yeah. And it's not a sufficient move to to get to the place where someone might attack um, a writer, but it's on that path. And that's why these things matter, because to suggest that the work is damaging to young people authorizes all kinds of Mm -hmm. possible responses. And it isn't. It's liberating. And they're reacting to the power of books. So so was the Ayatollah. Um, So are the people that are challenging those. They're reacting to the power. If they thought books didn't matter, they wouldn't do this. I've said this before. Mm Absolutely. And they are right that they matter, but they're doing something terrible. And like you, I can easily imagine a situation and it would be, you know, a trans person of color's body on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, probably first, you can imagine a lot of places, but those are the most subject people, um, always have been and are now. And there's an especially precipitous moment where, especially in the world of books and reading, 
there's more visibility, more visibility in the arts than other spaces. So those people are even more on their line. I mean, I remember when I did the Drag Queen Story Hour episode for Annotated. Those people are putting their bodies on the line going to read um, Thomas the Tank Engine in a dress in a public place. Um, and I continue to be um, moved by mm-hmm. the bravery and sad that it is. It is that it means it is to do something brave, to do yeah. something like that. Um, so, I, you know, we're going to keep mentioning these stories. So this one, Dallas Area Librarians were told to remove every book that was challenged last year from the shelves, even those that were approved. This seems to me to be a, there's two, we're being sea-lioned into submission. We just got to get rid of them all and get on with our lives. I think it's an understandable move. I think it's sad. I have no shade to throw at the librarians here. Or the way I actually understand the move. I don't know that people, these particular administrators have the tools to combat what they're dealing with. They're, this is a soft target. There isn't an infrastructure of support here. This is not something, for example, you mentioned Penn. This is not something Penn gets involved in. I don't know. I mean, maybe they should. Maybe there's another, like, the target is moved. I don't know that there's a battle here closer to home um, and it's about access and I don't see the ACLU lawyering up here. There's a lot of other places and maybe it's a weak spot and we know that school boards and libraries um, are a place where, you know, people that have an out of scale passion for something can get a lot done and they're doing it, man. That's what they're, they're doing it, Rebecca. They're having a lot more success than I would have believed um, five years ago, even maybe even two years ago, the consistency of the, the, the efforts to get stuff out, um, is, is really, is really astonishing. Yeah, it is. And I, I also really understand how a school board and how librarians would arrive at this decision. Um, Mm -hmm. if you don't have mechanisms and support inside your system to evaluate all of these books. Now they have some kind of support because some books were approved after yeah. being challenged and others weren't. I mean, like one of the books that they had to pull is the Bible. So how do the folks on the far right feel about that? <laughs> catch catch 451, baby. That's what I've got yeah. to say about that. Yeah, yeah catch 451 for sure. Um, but I hate to see this for all the obvious reasons, but this is like once you start fighting a war of attrition and attrition is just the move, the people on the other side of one. And this sends the message that just keep challenging stuff and we'll just keep pulling them. And perhaps there is an equal and opposite move for folks on the left to make in a district like this of like, Mm. well, if they're going to pull everything we challenge, let's just challenge everything that we think is, you know, anti-progressive, anything that has harmful ideas about people of color, about queer people, anything that's limiting, that's antithetical to the progressive project. I don't think we should do that. Um, But it opens up this possibility for this to just continue happening where the folks who are going to challenge books, who do believe that that's a valid way to control the marketplace of ideas, if they don't encounter any resistance, they're not going to stop. You know, and I, I say this you know, once a month on this episode on the show, but like I live in a state where we have a governor who basically won his election on the threat of critical race theory in schools, which is well established as not being a thing that is actually taught to young people, you know, exists in law schools. Most of the folks talking about it can't even define it. But those are the folks who are listening to these ideas, who are going to take action on it. And it feels very present that they are taking action mm-hmm. and they need to continue encountering resistance. And yeah, I would love to see the ACLU get involved. I'd love to see more organized pushing back from the side of these ideas matter. These, this is liberating to young people. We understand, as you were saying about Rushdie, this is why this is threatening to mm-hmm. people on the right. They are trying to create social control and conformity and exposing people to other ideas that open their minds is dangerous because once people get ideas, they start doing stuff outside of your control right. and outside of your model. That is the society that we live in. We have a free exchange of ideas and it's anti-democratic to pursue things this way. I want to see school districts take this seriously. I want to see formed resistance to it. And that takes all of us, you know, mm-hmm. everybody here in the U.S., we live in a school district. I don't have kids, but I can get involved still. Um, and we should all be looking at these things because this this will just continue to happen. And this is a place where, you know, usually a slippery slope argument is not worth making, but it is a slope that we're watching 
people travel down from don't put these ideas in front of my kids into how dare you even exist and I will attack you for that. Um, and I don't, I have no tolerance for going any further on the slope. You know, I was thinking about this too. There is a world in which um, you, you might take a lesson from the American Revolution where, you know, Washington was just trying not to get his forces destroyed and, and retreating and retreating. There might be a world in which those people who advocate for and want diverse books, books to help kids of, of different identities and experiences, there is once they've banned a hundred books, they're not done here, right? Because right. books keep coming, and I think this might be the move: is if it's a game of whack-a-mole, present more moles. There's That's... more books, there, and make them challenge it all. Mm-hmm. Whatever the next season of whatever this season's books are in middle grade, get the new ones by queer authors of color, or that are about neurodiversity, or that are about immigrants, or whatever it is. There's books coming because there are more of them now than ever coming out of publishing, um, which is good. And that could be a tool. It's like, okay, you read and challenged this. We're going to put more on the next syllabus. Challenge those. And you know what? The year after that, there's going to be more. There is no end to this. This is Um, a a place where, yeah, I think this is a place where the left can co-opt some of the strategies that have been really successful on the right. This is the Steve Bannon, Alex Jones, flood the zone with shit method, Mm -hmm. but flood it with really great stuff about queer folks and people Unicorns and rainbows and the whole thing. Um, So I... You know, that they've banned George by Alex Gino is very sad, but it's not the only, it's not a keystone work. It's not the only thing that's out there. A lot of these books and the presence of multiple books, and I think that speaks to the plur- the strength of the plurality mm-hmm. and the pluralism um, that the freedom to read and write and and to express yourself represents is that if you want control, you're going to have to work real, real, real hard at it. Make them work as hard yeah. as you can. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Where do we go from here? Our buddy George. Oh, man. I don't, Poor George. I mean, I understand that the, the House of the Dragon is coming out. People want to talk to George. I have so much sympathy for his mm-hmm. position. Um, I'm not interested at all. And really, I'm not even really interested in kidding about George's... No. Um, position to be in. You and I were talking the other day about a future, probably a Patreon episode where we rank the most, I don't know, influential, wild book phenomenon of our professional lives as we've been doing this, or reading lives going back to teenagers. And the series outstripping the books of Game of Thrones is on my long list of wild stuff that's happened. Mm -hmm. And then the, the continuing... Martin watch of when winds of winter is going to come out. There's a long one here. Did you have any pull quotes? I mean, I think he is testy about fans. <laughs> I think that's legitimate, George. 100%. I am with you. Shut your mouth about whether or not you think George is sick and going to die. That's just, yeah. So I mean, gross. I would like to build George R. R. Martin a time machine that he can go back and never start blogging his updates yeah. about when he thinks these books will be done. Like some of this is a problem of his own creation that folks, there is demand and he would meet it by blogging and saying, here's where things stand and here's when I think it will be done. And you don't have to do that. There are plenty of folks who have highly anticipated next books in their series or next releases, and they're just keeping it to themselves until there's a pub date. I think that's the strategy. I would bet mm-hmm. that George wishes he had that time machine. I would love for him to have it. You know, I don't think that he owes people anything in terms of a delivery date or, or any of it. You know, he said, you know, that he's given up on predicting how the series will end. So I think that's interesting that the book, yeah. that the show has already ended. He is continuing to write the books. He's following his own path through how those stories are unfolding. It's just interesting to know that he doesn't have an endpoint in mind that he's writing towards. And then it'll be done when it's done. And that's just true. Like, this is true of all creative work. It will be done when it's done. We both know enough writers. Anybody who's listening to this and works in the industry knows enough writers to know that it's pretty common that the drafts aren't done on the day that the draft is supposed to be done. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. and unless you're way over your deadline, there's flexibility in publication timelines. We don't know if his publisher even has a timeline for this that they're targeting. 
anymore. Um, the I think the frustration is really palpable. I understand why he wanted to come out and say, well, leave me alone. <laughs> like, yeah. stop speculating about my death. Leave me alone. It's going to be done when it's done. I also think that at this point, we're just in Streisand effect Hall of yep. Mirrors, where it's all yep. just reflecting back and forth. And the best thing he could do is just stop talking about it. Just stop. That's right. Just stop flip doing off the interviews. Yeah, just flip off the lights, go into your closet, sit in the dark, write these books at the pace that you want to write them and give if them you to people. Write them, if, if that's you what you want to do. write yeah, them, yes. Right. Yeah, and, and let it be, let it speak for itself when it comes out. Just, un, I, I think I want George R. R. Martin to be unburdened of these expectations that people have of the kinds of commentary and judgment that fans issue about when are these going to be done. And, you know, even... We wrote about this on um, on Book Riot. George R. R. Martin wants you to stop speculating about his death. And even the first handful of comments about it that came across on social were like, well, I would stop if he would just finish it already. Like, okay, I understand. But also that's not productive. And every time George R. R. Martin says anything, that's the kind of response it elicits. So I, I would I just recommend like, George, you're the only one. He's the only one who can fix this now. Yeah, and this I, is a war game situation, right? Yeah. The only way to win is to not play. Like he's got... Right. If, if again, if he cares that much, I mean, he clearly likes working on other stuff, which is fine. He doesn't yeah. have to spend every waking moment doing this thing and to be a person of value and not a subject of ridicule. Um, maybe, maybe he has to sign agreements with people interviewing him saying, I'm not talking about the new books. I'm going to talk about the video yeah. game or the series or whatever else it is. Um, but I'm sure no one is as unhappy with this situation as George. No, um, it sounds really pulling tough. Pulling for you, George, and I, I can't imagine... This is great, but like we're going to hear about this while House of the Dragon comes out, and there's mm-hmm. going to be other Game of Thrones, and he's been working on them to some degree, it sounds like. Um, but yeah, it's there's nothing like it. the The George Watch is a very strange, slow. It's like burning fires ember um, that every now and again has, or like a solar flare will will flare up, and and people think about it. And now it's become, I think it's become a thing where people don't even. I mean, there are people that care about the new book coming out. But people like the blood sport of making fun mm-hmm. of George R. R. Martin. Like it's be, has taken on a life of its own. That's even not about people being excited for the book out. Like it's a meme um, yeah. to some degree to talk about. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I told you last time. Boy, I'd be curious to see how they handle some of the stuff that were critis- was criticized in the first series: incest, violence against women, violence against children. Um, I've heard that they've done, if not a sensitivity pass, a Let's let's make the show that's responsive at least to a modern sensibility. You know that's changed even the last ten years. I'll be curious to see how they handle it. Um, there could be some interesting stuff. It looks gorgeous. The, the stills and the trailer look amazing. Um, we'll see. That's coming out this weekend. It's coming out hot, Ooh. and they got Lord of the Rings coming out after that. Uh, can we do a quick um, confidence index sure. about Keanu Reeves starring in Hulu's Devil in the White City? Well, before we get that, did you read this book? Do you know this book? Yes, but you okay. know when it came out, like well, sure, it's been a while. Ago. This is not exactly striking while the iron is hot. This is one of the great crossover dad book hits yep. of the last twenty years. Eric Larson, who I, I, I the, the I'm, I'm scarred from the Caro McCullough choose you must choose one <laughs> discussion we had last week. I'm still recovering from my own sense of that. Um, Larson, I think, has probably moved more units than both of them combined, I would guess. Oh, yes, I would think so. Um, this this was his most popular one, right? What was the this book was, about the... This was the big breakout. There was, He had Thunderstruck, which I, I believe is about yeah. a shipwreck situation. There are the others. most recent one was about a shipwreck. This is the is one that, that really broke out. And yeah. It's been rumored to be in development for a long time. At one point, DiCaprio was rumored to star, and it looks like he gets one of the executive credits where a former star that was attached and maybe had the rights gets the executive producer credits by passing on it. Um, so this is going to be Devil in the White City. The story is set around the Chicago World's Fair, and there's an architect and a madman. So it's the fair and the whole world. It's going to be very sort of steampunky, I would imagine, the, the world that it's that's set in, this Victorian-American emergent technology, but also kind of Victorian at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the first modern serial killer always does well. Circulars eat. That's just how it goes in shows like this. But then Keanu Reeves is playing the architect. And I think that's the thing that's interesting is that it's about the World's Fair and the other side of the coin, which is, you know, sort of human depravity. 
um, also a doctor who's named Holmes weirdly. So you get all that (laughs) twisted Sherlock Holmes vibe for free. Um, A limited series, Hulu, Keanu Reeves, Devil in the White City, born out of a Scorsese DiCaprio joint that's fallen through the cracks. Let's just do one category. Scale of one to ten, how confident are you that this is going to be good? Ten being the most confident. Like an eight and a half, nine. Okay, very confident. Can you tell me why? Keanu Reeves, Scorsese, DiCaprio, Hulu. (laughs) Like Hulu's on a hot streak in my house right now. I think a lot of the originals have yeah. been great. I will stand Keanu Reeves most of the time in most things. And I'm glad they went for him in the architect role, not the serial killer role, especially as we've come off of Keanu Reeves and John Wick. Like we have him being that kind of like, uh, like violent badass. That's a different, it's different from being mm-hmm. a serial killer, but not a totally, that's a difference of degree and not kind, I think from roles. And I'm interested in this. I like, thoughtful, uh, clever Keanu Reeves. And I like the idea of him on a hunt for a bad guy. Um, there's good storytelling. Like the, the, the source material here is excellent um, and really well done. You could be pretty faithful to the book and produce, I think, a great screenplay or great teleplay. Just good people attached. I have a lot of faith in all the people attached to this and in the source material. So I think there's, uh, yeah, I'm 80, what, 8.5? That's like a solid B to B plus zone. If this is not a B plus, I'll be surprised. Where are you? I'm lower, and I hate to say this because I really like Keanu. Am I wildly inaccurate to be a little worried about Keanu pulling off a dramatic role as a lead? When's the last dramatic role? Keanu pulled off and you're like, boy, that was awesome. And Keanu wasn't punching someone. Hmm. Tough, tough stuff. Yeah, I think he doesn't, he hasn't done it in a while, but it's in there. It's in there. Okay. I, I mean, that's your confidence index. I'm going <laughs> six and a half. <laughs> okay. It's going to depend on who they get to play Holmes. That's the that's juicy true. role, right? Um, that The serial killer is always, you know, the, the, it's the... Oh, come on. Jeff, what's his name? Hannibal Lecter effect, right? The Darth mm-hmm. Vader effect. Um, so in a lot of ways, Keanu, re- Keanu will play the straight person, the straight man, to use an old, now seemingly out-of-date phrase as now I say this. So the other person's going to be pulling a lot of the narrative weight. He's going to be building things. <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> Architecture is kind of a tough uh, visual <laughs> profession to do. Um, it's going to look be- gorgeous. They're going to back up the truck here. Uh, to make this look awesome. So on the very least, it should Mm -hmm. be cool. Limited series is always good. There's no season two of Devil in the White City, so I'm into that for sure. Let's revisit when they cast Holmes. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. All right, so we can move on from there. Let's do another sponsor and come back. Okay, I do want to talk for a minute about this change that's... I haven't seen a press release or anything about it. It's, It's floated around on Twitter there's a thread I'll put in here. Um, the The user is Buffoni Baptiste. I don't know this person. This is put in our editor's channel. And if it wasn't backed up by some other people chiming in in the comments to um, their thread, I'm not sure what I would have said. But th- the gist of it here is that Barnes & Noble is making some changes to its buying and presentation. And the net effect is that they're going to be deprecating or de-emphasizing even as much as they already do, debut hardcovers, hardcovers in general, in favor of putting towards the front of the store on end caps and on tables and all the things you see when you go into in that first part of the Barnes & Noble, the atrium, um, the foyer of a Barnes & Noble, if you will, and going to be focusing on guaranteed sales from paperbacks. What I think this means is a lot of TikTok hits. Uh-huh. Is that what we mean here? Is that what we're talking about? I think... I mean, this is maybe a warm take, if not a hot one, that this isn't actually a very big change. (laughs) I've wondered about the same thing. Like most of the shelf space in any bookstore goes to backlist. And most books sold in a typical year are backlist. And only a small percentage of debut books in any given week, month, or year make it to any one bookstore's Mm -hmm. shelves by virtue of the fact that there are thousands of new books every year and a very limited amount of space, even in a big Barnes & Noble. 
So I don't know that this actually represents a big change that's worth a lot of outrage or concern on anybody's behalf in terms of how Barnes and Noble will be operating or the potential impact that it will have on authors. Like I understand if you're a debut author, yes, it is a bummer to think about, but now I can't on my pub day, go to my local Barnes and Noble yep. and see my book there. But that was never guaranteed anyway. Yeah. I like, don't know. I, I think that's a good point. I, I definitely understand, especially if you're a debut fiction writer um, and especially marginalized, which have a, even a harder job to get sold than anything else for a variety of reasons we talked about before that one of the compensations, maybe you're not going to sell a million books, but your mom could go to her local Barnes and Noble. And even if it wasn't on the front of, you go into the stacks and you could maybe find it there. I mean, Was maybe. that universally true? I don't know. I don't know I how true that was. I think it was, I actually, I think it was true for fewer people than it was not true for yeah. in any given week. And like, I get it, the dream of going to your store and being able to see your book there, but mm-hmm. there are hundreds, if not a thousand new books published every week and yeah. no store is carrying all of them. The The interesting sentence in the tweet here is that they're withholding it until they find evidence that's worth stocking in their stores and having some familiarity with how Barnes & Noble specifically does things, but also just with like retail stocking practices, that evidence that it's worth stocking can be pretty soft. It can be people are calling asking for it. People are pre-ordering it. So Mm. we know that we should have it on debut day. It could be a big book club is going to be talking about it. It it could be all kinds of things. Hardcover sales are down 19% year over year. We are in a recession. The TikTok hits are mostly books that are in paperback and Barnes & Noble is trying to maximize having the kinds of things on the shelves and in their stores that when people walk in, they're going to walk out with fewer dollars than they started. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And this makes sense as a strategy to me. I think I understand concern about it. I understand why folks want to be on Twitter expressing their concern. I do not think it's actually with like in absence of a press release or an interview or a source inside Barnes and Noble who says yes, this is actually how we're fundamentally changing things. And and then there can be some sort of corroborating, here's a thing we would have previously stocked that's a debut and now we're not going to stock it anymore. Or now we won't order it prior to its publication day. I, I'm having a hard time being mad about it. Like There are some Barnes & Noble booksellers responding in this thread and saying like, yeah, there are tons of books that I want to stock and try to hand sell in my Barnes & Noble and corporate won't let me. And I both have sympathy for yeah. that, like local booksellers being able to pick stuff and curate and hand sell directly to their communities is a that's an important thing. It's an important tool. And it's something Barnes & Noble has said they were focusing on in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I have sympathy for that. But I, I still just think it, most of most debut books in general are not making it to a Barnes and Noble shelf on their publication day, and Barnes and Noble is always has always and is already looking for evidence that this is going to sell in their community before they order something in and take up a valuable space mm-hmm. on the shelf. Those algorithms are already in place. Those humans doing that work have been doing that work of looking at what should we order into this store? What should we order into another one? They had been localizing more of the ordering choices at Barnes & Noble. So like, I think it's an upsetting message. I don't know the the, the deep source of it that doesn't come out um, in this Twitter thread. I am... I'm holding off on being concerned about a big impact in the absence of really more information about it. Yeah, I think it's for, for well, I mean, to a first approximation, all books have this problem, which is mm-hmm. it's hard to sell books. And fiction is even harder. Fiction is harder to sell. And debut fiction is the hardest of all to sell. Um, and then debut fiction that's mid-list or, you know, has some other, you know, it's not a mass market title, is kind of the hardest of all things that, well, poetry is harder still, I guess. But, you know, you, you hear what I'm saying. That's a commercial yeah. enterprise. So that it's already so hard. Having one brick taken off the wall feels like it's already so hard. The question is, does that brick any get you, does it actually well, get you anything at all? And, and I don't think it probably, for these books that maybe would have been stocked or stocked differently, let's say two years ago, is their sales trajectory any different? And I think this right. whole thing is a critique. Let's say that it's all true, just for example. The... If it is true, and I suspect it probably is, it makes a lot of sense financially and, and from book selling point of view. The thing it's really a critique of is Barnes and Noble's ability to sell books. 
because mm-hmm. really what this suggests is Barnes and Noble is just a warehouse where people come to to find the books they already know about, which is not the case it was when we were teenagers, right? We'd go there and browse and find stuff because the world of where people find books is now on their phones and it's now especially on Bookstagram and TikTok. And I had an experience the other day. I was at Powell, spent a long time there with Ames, walking around. I was in the front, the foyer, the orange room here at Powell's, mm-hmm. you know, looking where the new books are. And I was looking around to see what I had in front. And I was listening to people. And several people said, say, I saw this one on TikTok or Bookstagram. And there was a bunch of people crying about it. And it was a Colleen <laughs> Hoover or uh-huh. something else. And they pick it up and they go, they're there to physically pick up the book they've already heard about. They're not there to discover yeah, anymore. Right. And I, I think is, that's been true for a while. Actually. Yes. Yeah, I think it's this is a product or a response to the yep. fact that at least Barnes & Noble, big chain bookstores have lost the battle of discoverability. (laughs) Indies, I think, still have some of that going on. Folks do go into their indie bookstores to talk directly to maybe one bookseller in particular that knows their taste and is going to help them. But Barnes & Noble has lost that battle, at least right now, at least while TikTok is ascendant. I think that really what's going on here is I'm not even sure that this brick has come off the wall or or that maybe it was already off the wall. I don't know mm. that this is actually movement, that this represents real movement and how things are done. I do think that in whatever statement gave rise to you know, this person bringing out the tweet thread about it, it's one thing to like live inside a system and know that there is yeah. systemic discrimination right. and that the system does fail in publishing. The, the system fails midlist writers and it particularly fails marginalized writers. It makes it even it's already hard and it makes it even harder. It's a different thing when to see the matrix functionally, to see the system and to see That's the right. ways that if this is happening, how it will make it, as you were saying, make it even harder for you and I think it's a response to that and that there's space there for for Barnes and Noble to if they wanted to make a move back towards something with discoverability to come and say we can't support every debut novel also the word support like Barnes and Noble is withholding initial support isn't that's an interesting choice like Mm -hmm. no retailer is obligated to support anything and they're not supporting you they're putting you on the shelves because they think that they will make money from selling your books it's not support but if they did want to support and they did want to change something about the social ecosystem in which these books are sold they could say we recognize this is really really challenging and that marginalized authors face it even more so we're going to devote like a certain something we're going to devote something to debut fiction and debut fiction from marginalized communities we're going to highlight it in stores Mm -hmm. we're going to devote a certain amount of buying or a certain amount of promotion on the website or whatever to those titles because we cannot give space to every debut novel that is published either on our website or in our stores. But we realize that in the choices that we make, we're participating in a system. And if we wish to change that system or be a positive impact, we can use that power thoughtfully and carefully. And I think that would be the move. If I'm like in Barnes & Noble PR today, seeing this tweet thread going viral, that's what I'm thinking about is how do we how, how, how can we do both things? Do how they care? We... I mean, I think that's the question that's right. behind do, all like, of this. Do they yeah. care and, about any kind of yeah. and move if they, towards diversity, yeah. inclusion, and equity? Right. And if they do care, there's a way to do both. There's a way right. to make smart choices about what you stock so that you maximize the likelihood of having things on hand that people will buy, but then to do some more proactive featuring of titles by marginalized writers and get back into hey, let us help you discover these things. This is a way that if Barnes & Noble wanted to capitalize on it, kind of like what we were talking about a few months ago with the Barnes & Noble that was being sued for carrying an LGBTQ title, like get out in front of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Barnes & Noble, like you you rebrand it. Barnes & Noble can be your home for finding books by debut authors, marginalized authors, come get your queer books here. They could make that space if they wanted to. And I think that some of what these writers are reacting to is the implicit message in this that Barnes yes. & Noble may not be interested in making that space. Yeah, I think that's fair. And because functionally you're saying, you, you mentioned the word algorithm, because you know what also doesn't care is the TikTok algorithm. Mm-hmm. Or the, these algorithms yeah. not only do not care, they reinforce and reify existing biases and prejudice and, and taste, essentially, which is you know another fancy word for prejudice, if you think about it yep. in a certain way. So the power of the algorithm is such that 
everyone is subject to it. And we haven't figured out a way yet to push back on that kind of algorithm. And this, this is just that. It's, it's, it's capitulating to the power of that, the discoverability for the median book sold right now, especially that if it's fiction and if it's adult, is social media algorithm-based, whether wherever that's coming from. And publishing doesn't know how to do this. Authors don't know how to do this. Frankly, we don't know how mm-hmm. to do this in a lot of ways. And it's going to take some sort of systematized, okay, you know, if you think about the real estate of the bookstore as having value and where it is in the store has different amounts of value, you've got to do something you wouldn't normally do to push back against an algorithm or a systemic or an institution. So how are, what are you going to do you wouldn't just do that wouldn't make the most business sense in every single case? I think that's the question here. Mm-hmm. I think probably for the average author or, you know, if, if Barnes & Noble is actually interested, we want to spotlight, we want to make a difference in the kinds of books people are reading and the kind of authors that are being sold and read. They've got to set some piece of it apart. They also have to stay in business. So there's two things that have to happen at the same time. This part does feel like just a capitulation to market forces behind mm-hmm. their control. What else are they going to do? Maybe there, maybe there are things there's going on. I'd love to know this. Podcast at bookriot.com. I know we have booksellers out there. I know we have Barnes & Noble booksellers that have been there, there in the past. Like, is this something people talk about? Have you heard this from corporate? You know, what, what kind of marginal effort do the individual bookstores and sellers have to say, okay, I know we're going to put the bestsellers and the whatever is going to go over here and the discounted stuff. Do we, can we get a corner? Can we get a shelf? Can we get a section of shelf talkers? And in the past, it's been so hard to know because there's so much co-op and paper flay and mm-hmm. book Ryan discover that the, the front, the foyer, the highest real estate part of a Barnes and Noble is a mix of what they thought was going to sell on its own and what they got paid to put there. Yes. Now, what is it? Now and and where where are they saying where their values are out of sight of just the profit line? Because I think that's an interesting question we haven't really thought about. Um, we that hasn't been as much of the discourse. The easy thing is to say publishers should buy more books by marginalized people. We should that that's easy and it's necessary, but that's also one part of the ecosystem, right? The buyers are part of the ecosystem. The sellers, you know, what stores don't care every book for sure? It's independent bookstores. I mean, we mm-hmm. kind of it's it's hard to remember now, but like before like ninety one. This idea that there were these giant megastores, bookstores that kind of would have every title you might want as a thing out there in the world, that's, this is a new phenomenon. Like yeah. Most of the time, you would have to go somewhere else. Now, having said that, that warehousing real estate footprint allows Barnes & Noble to think about how they're going to use it. Clearly, staying in business at book selling is a hard business. Clearly, staying in business um, and doing what you got to do to be a successful business is part of it. But what percent of that pie, what percent of that... How many of those square feet or shelf feet are you going to use to do a mission? I think mm-hmm. it's a great question. And one that this is a thin end of the wedge to asking that kind of a question. Um, so that's all I've got. That's what I got. <laughs> Podcast <laughs> at bookriot.com. Yeah. Frontless foyer. Yeah. I think you read this earlier in the year, but I'm okay. starting to get in that like August rolling into Q4, looking back, making sure I didn't miss anything I really wanted to read this year. So I just earlier this week read Joan is Okay by Wakey Wang. Oh, okay. Go for it. Tell me Man, I love Wakey Wang. I loved chemistry. I I really, I I just have the fondest memory of reading chemistry like in one day on a Sunday a couple of years ago, just sitting down and taking in the whole book. And I I just really, really loved it. She's so assured. Her characters are so singular. And I feel like the world is like the world these characters live in, which is our world. She's not like world building, but it's fully realized that the Joan in the the titular Joan is a doctor. We are in her head. It's narrated from her voice. It's a unique perspective. And as you were saying I think there is some in, in like how Joan thinks about things and how she interprets people's behavior or doesn't interpret it. There are some hints that she may be on the spectrum, but it's not something mm. that it's not something that Joan is overt about in her, her understanding of herself on the page. And since we're in first person, Wang is not giving us any like exposition about it. Um, and it's really secondary to just how lovely and funny the voices what it's like to be in her head that it's that it's a book about partially being an ambitious young woman in a hard job partially about what she's going through grieving the death of her father and not quite being able to look fully 
at that mm-hmm. loss or at what it means. And then COVID starts near the end of the book and what it it's the author imagining herself into the life of an ICU doctor in that moment. Um, in, and it was the right amount of that for me. It doesn't get super heavy, but it, it does look at it pretty directly. I'm here for like, put me on Wakey Wang's email newsletter list. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm here yeah. for whatever she does next. I really, really admire her voice a lot and just feel like when I read chemistry, I had the feeling of like, this is somebody's debut. Like she's just coming out the gate mm-hmm. like this. Um, cool to see how the work has evolved with Joan is okay. And I'll, I'll just be curious about whatever she does next. I really, really loved it. Yeah. It's an extended character study. Yeah. Right. I mean, you think it's, it doesn't really have a plot. Things happen, but I think the idea of being assured with a difficult kind of a character to try to do the character justice and be even handed and, and sort of normalize Joan's mm-hmm. own experience and worldview. And then you get pandemic stuff, which I thought was fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. And mother daughter and East West, um, a lot to recommend it, but as a portrait of a person, both inside and outside various systems and relationship systems, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I think I, really I read that in, in one sitting. Um, what do I want to, I read a few things. What do I want to talk about? Um, because I am who I am, I finally got around to listening to Home Waters by John McLean, which is about <laughs> his family and his dad's um, book, A River Runs Through It. Mm-hmm. Flippin' loved every, <laughs> I think I listened to it. It's not very long. I listened over the course of like two days. Mm-hmm. Factoids for days. I'll be, I'll come to it when we eventually get to A River Runs Through It, um, when we do a, an episode about it, but um, really fascinating to see. I, I guess for our listeners, we've talked about how, you know, we do prize stuff. Um, there was no award for the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Oh. I think it's 76. And, but the Pulitzer Fiction Committee recommended A River Runs Through It to be the title. But the larger Pulitzer board decided not to award one. <gasps> and there was a statement given out and the chairman, I, t- I can't remember the fellow's name. The statement was there wasn't s- s- anything sufficiently distinguished, I think. How dare! Exactly. <laughs> and here's the thing. So John M. McLean, who is um, Norman McLean's uh, son, was working at the Chicago Tribune as a reporter. And guess who made the statement? It was the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Tribune. So John <laughs> McLean wrote a letter to his boss, basically <laughs> dressing him down, basically saying, how dare. I did not know this story, and I'm having such a reaction right now. <laughs> so some 50-year-old hot goss <laughs> about the Chicago Tribune newsroom and the inner workings of the Pulitzer Prize. And a lovely, quiet novel about fly fishing. <laughs> yeah. A couple of good literary anecdotes there. Robert Frost, I guess, would come to lecture at the University of Chicago while Norm McLean was there, and he would tell John stories. And Robert Frost, I guess, publicly said that, you know, um, what's the, oh, God, the two trails, DeVille's in the wood, what's it called? A snow, oh, um, walking on a snow evening? What's it no, called? that's uh, The Road Less Traveled. Road Less Traveled, sorry, it's a different poem. But apparently Frost publicly said um, that, you know, it came to him in one night, but when he actually gave lectures, he would talk about what a disaster writing that poem was. It took a billion years. And Frost, with the great guest lecturer power move, he would walk into the lecture hall as the bell was ringing immediately start talking, talk for the entire like two hours, and then hit his hand would hit the door as the bell rang to <laughs> dismiss everyone, and he was out like a, like a shot, so he Love didn't have it. to talk to anybody. Love the flex real from flex. Robert Frost. They're real flex in 1952. Is this, is this where you got the fact you were sharing with me yes, earlier about uh, McLean and uh, Dr. Seuss working together? <laughs> Theodore Geisel and, and uh, Norman McLean worked together at the Dartmouth Humor Mag. And uh, McLean said, Dr. Seuss, or then Teddy, I guess he would, who knows what he called him, Teddy, was the funniest person he'd ever encountered. So Man. big shouts, big look for Dr. Seuss. I mean, Seuss you got to imagine, you get Dr. Seuss a little drunk, which I don't know if that's what they were happen- doing yeah. back then, but it, it, there's potential there. <laughs> yeah. In a way, you know, the, the, the heart of that book is um, Paul, right? Paul, mm-hmm. played by Brad Pitt in the movie, if you know it better, and trying to figure out, apparently the first draft of the story Norman was trying to tell was just he and his dad and his dog mourning Paul, just like sad bastard, big sad bastard vibes. 
um, sad Bassett vibes maybe is a better way of putting it. I don't know if it was a Bassett or not. It's a better joke. Um, but he's like, this. no one can read this. So he rewrote it to be about fishing and you know leading up to it, which is interesting. To I mean, see. it's I, still a five-alarm snot bomb. Oh, it's a disaster. <laughs> well, it's like, sadder if you have an affection for Paul, right? It's a, it's a yeah. hagiocry of Paul. And, you know, John says, you know, my dad, and then the movie on top of it by casting an absolutely incandescent pit. Mm-hmm. Um the hagiography is like taking two steps up. Like Paul was very well liked, but he wasn't, he wasn't the pit. He wasn't, he wasn't that guy, but he was mercurial and dynamic and good looking and good fisherman. But, uh, you know, it dialed up to 11. This is what happens in Hollywood stories. But his dad did a, his dad did one step of glorifying his brother. And then Hollywood took it another step, um, which is, which is fascinating. I, I was telling a friend of mine, I was talking on the phone about this and then church of baseball. I talked about recently, I will Mm -hmm. read books about cultural objects. I love, I'll, Give it, give it to me all. I'll read them all. Yes. Even to my things, I'd give like two and a half. Well, I, up to it, including three and a half stars. I, I know I just besmirched rating <laughs> systems, but it doesn't have to be a personal favorite as these things were, right? Yeah, it just has to be good. It just has to be good. So, and then the other one I read, uh, listened to Simu Lu's memoir, We Were Dreamers. Oh, how was that? <sighs> oh. Rebecca, really interesting. Um, okay. a, an amiable, interesting guy. His story's fascinating. But I don't know how he forgave his parents. I don't oh. know how he do it. I mean, and it's complicated. Um, and it's kind of yada yada a little bit about how we didn't talk and they beat me and now we're Whoa. cool. Okay. And I, I, I can, I mean, it's a living situation, right? Sure. They're still alive. He has to have a relationship with them. A complicated story, a fascinating, he, he, he really goes back and does as best he can to give their immigrant story justice and, you know, acknowledge the difficulties of it in his own implication of, you know, not Simu was not the ideal son, but he wasn't a bad guy. I mean, it's one of these situations mm. and they really had a hard time with it. His own journey and the, his, his, you know, kind of his last day as an accountant at Deloitte and Touche all the way to getting the call to be Shang-Chi wow. really fascinating stuff. A really good listen. I'd okay. say, um, I think my kids are going to listen to it. Uh, there's, marginal subject matter i you know what the sidebar the dam is breaking on gatekeeping content for my kids when it comes Mm. to books books alone they're about that age right because ames is 11 and a half and this thing and then the one he's doing now he's reading the martian right now i almost texted him about this and having just a wonderful time i'm so excited about that it's so right and they've seen the movie we watched it together and the the book has fewer f-bombs than the the movie has fewer f-bombs than the book because i think one of the pga rating and you know famously the opening line which he was delighted by Uh has a couple of choice f-bombs it's throughout but it's kind of a gateway adult book because it's Mm -hmm. life and death and science and there's some bad language but it doesn't it's not really opening the Pandora's box of everything. <laughs> yeah, I was that age when I had the gateway experience of reading The Shining. So uh, he's going to be a lot less, you know, yeah. traumatized than that. I, man, I, this may, I want to like call your kids and talk to them about The Martian. <laughs> Maybe we'll have Ames guest on a show for a few minutes. Come talk to us about what that he would likes be about fantastic. The Martian. It is that's super interesting. I mean, that is about the age I think where. I started just reading whatever and where my parents were like, if you understand it, fine, but a lot of stuff's going to go over your head and we'll, you'll figure it out when you figure it out. And I don't know, there are risks to that, but everybody that I know whose parents raised them that way, like, I think it serves you better than it doesn't in the long run to have that freedom to explore ideas and read stuff and like, you can either be titillated by things you halfway understand in books, or you can go Google yeah. it now and like just give them the books, man. I think we're going to take more of the German approach to drinking, which is you can have some when mm-hmm. you're around us, rather than throwing open the liquor cabinet and saying, okay, well, you're going to have to experience this someday. So I think mm-hmm. some we're going to take some middle path, because if he was like, I really want to read Flowers in the Attic today, I'd be like, you know, Ames... <laughs> I think Nobody ever to... needs to read flowers. Well, you know what I'm the... saying? Like, he picked yeah. it up. He's, he's like, hey, yeah. Dad, could you get this from the library? I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But some increasingly adult material is appropriate. And anyway, I this is the first, was it the first? I think it's really the first adult book that I also have great affection for. Mm. It's a great reading experience. So um, I think I'm going to hook him up Project Hail Mary next because that he, yeah. he'll be totally mind blown because there's no movie version of it that he has seen. Oh, are you going to have him listen to it? He's not a great audiobook listener. No? He likes to read. Okay. Rowan would do Project Hail Mary. I think she's a little it's young. It's so good on audio. I know you said it's really good. It'd be, if we had a big road trip coming up, I would suggest maybe a family listen, but mm. 
he's you know staying up late reading the martian love um, it and want to feed him that so can we that's... just incorporate ames's adventures and adult fiction into front list foyer <laughs> yeah i think i've been tr- i've been nudging towards the hobbit for a while because mm. it felt like he'd be into that it starts off pretty slow and he just kind of hasn't taken the, but yeah, I th- yeah i'm starting to look like what makes sense like da vinci code oh I'm interested in that okay maybe I he mean, likes art some, he likes art heists spicy stuff in there are you ready to explain self-flagellation <laughs> that's not the part i'm worried about the the phrase i don't want to talk about is sex cult to be honest mm. with you that's not what <laughs> really I'm jeff not... why <laughs> We're just, we might just be one sex cult over the line <laughs> you know, for, for I think warmly introducing I'm so, Dan Brown. Maybe the thing, besides the fact that I would be delighted to watch you have to have that conversation yeah. with Ames, the thing that is most interesting about that possibility is that like so much of what was you know, exciting or titillating about yeah. Da Vinci when it came out is those iconoclastic ideas about religion and the whole like Jesus was married and it was to Mary Magdalene. And, but if you weren't raised I know. in the church, which yeah, your kids which weren't, nope. that loses a lot of its teeth, I would think. It's like explaining like, the joke. Right, right, right. Yeah, got to explain the joke. So I don't know. I'm looking out. I think I didn't love Artemis, Weir's second book, but I think he might like it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. certainly worth putting it's a heist and um, I'm certainly like Project Hail Mary. If anyone else has out ideas out there for a nerdy, literate 11 year old who's wading into the waters of adulthood, um, I'd be curious to hear. I've got some, I think the Becky Chambers, Long Way yeah. to a Small Angry Planets, the Wayfarer series would be interesting for him too. I, I, I got an omnibus Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yes, the increasingly that's misnamed the right age for Hitchhiker's that. Trilogy. He's just about perfect for that. I don't know if I said on the show, I got him the complete far side from the library, two <laughs> giant doorstops, which he ripped through in about three days. Oh, so we're, we're, we're into it now. We're into it now. We're having a good time. I, you know, he did, um, I think, some Daniel Jose Older, and I okay. think um, also Roan was listening to Rebecca Roan Horse, and I think I might recommend that to him as well. He kind of likes the harder sci-fi than mm. the more, yeah, the more out there kind of a stuff. So I'm 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 open to all kinds of ideas. The hit list we're waiting on. Karina's Karina Glazer's new installment, The Vanderbeekers, is coming out September 20th. So I already pre-ordered that. That's coming. We'll do that as a family read aloud. Really excited for that too. So that's my you front know, list for you and previews of things to come. You're not too far from him being able to read Jurassic Park. The thing is, if you've seen the movie, the book doesn't have much to recommend it. We did a whole show about well, this. Well, that's true. It's still a fun read, but yeah, if you yeah. know what's going to happen, maybe not. I don't know. And the other Crichtons, that, that's, I think that's in the right idea. We watched Hunt for Red October, which he likes the process stuff of everything works. And he's like, is the book interesting? No, don't read the book. Amanda <laughs> and I did a show about that. Um, I'm, but you're, in the, you're, you're thinking around, along the right kind of uh, yeah, vibe. That seems like the right so. vibe. Anyway, all right, that's our show, bookriot.com slash listen. Choose emails, podcast at bookriot.com. I'd really be interested to know from the Barnes & Nobles out there if if this is picking up tremors of a new state of being or if this is part and parcel of something that's been going on a while. Um, and then what, if any, discourse has happened internally at Barnes & Noble about their participation in the great diversification that we've seen and made great inroads in terms of titles available um, how do they understand or have talked about their place in the, 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 buying, the reading ecosystem, frankly, in the book buying ecosystem? be very interested to hear. Also, go check out our Patreon. Never Let Me Go is out there now. Um, we talk about the book and the movie. It's a good hour and 20 minutes of content. I'm going to now recover for five minutes and try to make a very scattered case for an <laughs> underbaked and way too complicated and impractical rating Can't wait. structure. Rebecca, thank you as always.